Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. So that brings us uh, to step six, uh, learning my gospel story uh, by which God gives meaning to my experience. Yet, to this point, the entire journey has probably felt like a major deconstruction project. Uh, We have taken life, we have broken it into pieces, and some of those pieces had the tarnish Uh, of destructive messages on them, and we have polished that off of those pieces, we haven't made anything yet. Uh, And so we could feel very much like a person without a story. And that's slightly better than a person with a destructive story, but it's not sustainable. Uh, We have to begin to put those things back together. Judith, uh, Justin, and Lindsay Holcomb, your life was intended for more than shame, guilt, fear, anger, and confusion. Uh, The abuse does not define you uh, or have the last word on your identity. Yes, it is part of your story, uh, but not the end of your story. Uh, And so we're going to ask some questions. Uh, Who am I now? Uh, Who is this person who has hurt me? Who is God? Uh, And the answers that we give may not be quite as neat as we would like for them to be. But if the answers were really neat, they would probably be way too syrupy sweet for us to trust them. Uh, When when we go through things like what would bring us to uh, an event like this, we want a little bit of grit in our truth uh, that that it can match up to life. Uh, I hope the things that we talk about match up with that. Uh, And so... Who am I now? Uh, I am changed and unchanged. And both of those things are true. Uh, I am unchanged. Uh, There is one me who has lived my life. Uh, The uh, post-abuse me cannot write a letter to the pre-abuse me and it be read by a different person. Now, this may be a defining mark of my life, and I think about some of these things as before and after. Uh, But there is one me. I am unchanged, one person living a continuous story. I'm also changed. I see some things differently. I value things differently. What's important to me? Uh, uh, There is no way to go through any significant life experience and not be changed. Uh, And so keeping in balance that I am changed and unchanged, I am strong enough to be weak. Uh, In this one, if you could put an asterisk somewhere in here, uh, that language I think is huge. I am strong enough to be weak. You know, oftentimes when we go through these situations, we're trying to be strong for everybody else. And we think being strong means showing no weakness. Um, Yet... 
in my role, I am frequently the kind of person who gets to hear stories for the first time somebody has told them. And every time somebody tells me a story for the first time, the attribute that I think would describe that moment is courage. To, say, to take something that was so masked in shame and threats and fear, to say, no, I'll face all of that. Uh, to continue on a journey that God would have me on towards something that is healthy and whole, um, that is courage. In learning that kind of vulnerability uh, that is strong enough to be weak uh, is a big part of what we're after. I'm capable of influential choices. Uh, I have a voice. Uh, part of what hopefully we've learned on this journey is that I can say, no, that's wrong. No, that's foolish. I no longer wish to participate in that. I can see some of the things that I was doing to aiding and abet that. I don't want to do that anymore. And so I have voice. I have a sense of self-efficacy, which is just a way of saying, I believe my choices matter. If you want to know what self-efficacy is, and you've ever watched a sporting event, and you've heard of that mystical thing called momentum, uh, where you've got this team and they're, they're beating this team, and then a thing happens and all of a sudden this team starts to rise up. This team just got a sense, we can do this. That, uh, I can do something about this. That, that is part of who I am. And so Leslie Vernick, she says, true healing happens uh, as we learn to live holy lives by growing into the identity God has already given us. It's not something that He's holding out on, um, which is what will make us whole. Ed Welch, uh, the most radical treatment for the fear of man is the fear of the Lord. Uh, our goal is to love people more than we need them. Uh, we are overflowing pitchers, not leaky love cups. Uh, which is one of the common metaphors for who we are, that uh, I, because of what's happened to me, I am, uh, I am filled with holes and I, I just can't retain anything that's good and I am dry and empty and I have nothing to give to anybody. And we begin to think of ourselves uh, in that kind of um, degrading image. And so who are the people uh, who hurt me? Uh, and every story has good guys and bad guys. Uh, one of the things that's usually most hurtful and confusing is that the loved one who is now hurting us entered the story as a good guy or a good girl. They were, they were one of the people that we really liked. That's what allowed them to get into the story and get the sense of bond and closeness uh, that, uh, that we would be as committed to them as we are. And, and now that is turned. And so the gospel story is one that balances uh, personal responsibility uh, with the possibility of redemption. And so as we strive to do that in the way that we think about the person who has hurt us, uh, one of the things that we would say is that they are a sinner, not sin. Uh, now the minor key part of that is uh, none of us want to be defined by our worst moments. 
And so it's like, ah, I don't want to do that to them if I don't want them to do that to me. Uh, but uh, the major key element uh, is that when we define them by their sin, it gives a whole lot of power to the past. If every time we think of them, they are the abuser, then every time we see them, what flashes? Abuse. And it is a way that too much power uh, is given to that event. Now, they are a fruit bearer. Uh, Matthew seven sixteen. you will know them by their fruit. And so if we're not going to define them by their sin, past tense, uh, what is it that's there? Well, there's some kind of fruit in their life, and we're far enough along in the journey, not just because we've done this live here together, but if you're walking this and affording the opportunities for this other person to do the same, that what are some of the things that should be becoming evident if they are genuinely committed to change? Well, humility. Uh, mutually trusted accountability. Uh, patience with where you are on their journey. Uh, engaging in their own process of change. Uh, if it's substance abuse, uh, I would encourage them to do the uh, substance abuse seminar that we have that's built on a similar nine-step paradigm. Uh, you can get that at bradhambrick.com slash addiction. Uh, if it's abuse, uh, then on anger. BradHambrick.com slash anger seminar would be something that they could go through. Uh, a third way that I think Scripture would encourage us to think about the person who has hurt us. Uh, they are capable of change. Uh, and here I might say this is the language of strong honor instead of cheap grace. You know, oftentimes when somebody has gotten in such a long-standing pattern, we go, I just don't think they could ever change. And then when we begin to treat their lack of self-control as if it were a handicap, we feel guilty for holding them responsible for it. By the grace of God, every person is capable of change. And so whatever fruit is in your life, you've got to own it. Um, now, uh, who and where is God? Um, you know, one of the things is that God is near those who are suffering. If you take some of the classic passages on how to deal with fearful and anxiety-provoking situations, uh, passages like Philippians 4, First uh, Peter 5, uh, we usually come to those passages and we immediately go to the verbs. We say, God, what is it that you want me to do? And you say, think on these things, and I make a list, and I get index cards, and I, okay, this is what I need to do. And I think we fly right over one of the most repeated things that is in almost every passage like that. God goes out of the way to emphasize His nearness. I am with you in this. Because He knows when pain is near, when fear is close, God feels far. And so the fact that he, would, that he would say in the midst of that experience, I'm with you, shows the degree of understanding that he has uh, for what we're going through. Our pioneer uh, may seem like strange language, uh, but 
oftentimes in situations like this, we just find ourselves saying, you know, I wish I knew somebody who had walked this road. Yeah, I wish I knew somebody who had been through this level of rejection and abuse and betrayal that, that I can learn from them, that I can hear from them, that, I'm, that I might even, if it were possible, to draw on their strength uh, for what I'm going through. And then we sigh and think, yeah, that's one of those thoughts like unicorn. Uh, we all know what it means and we all know it doesn't exist. Um, and the language of uh, Diane Langberg here speaking about sexual abuse, but I think it transfers to anything that we're talking about. She says, Jesus is a man of sorrows. He's intimate with grief. He was left alone, regarded with contempt. He's scarred for all eternity. His suffering left its tracks across his face. His hands and his feet carry marks of violence done to him. He was afflicted, struck, crushed, stripped, oppressed. Suffering does that, you know. It leaves its mark on those who must endure it. Jesus was storming the gates of hell, even while he bowed himself uh, to our finitude and brokenness that he was pioneering. He was making a way through the kind of suffering that we were we have been discussing. And he is God is capable of transforming suffering. Uh, transforming doesn't mean eliminating. Uh, I would, you know, maybe as a, a case study there, uh, encourage you to read Hebrews eleven. Uh, Hebrews eleven is a passage that's often referred to as the hall of faith. Uh, and we read that, and we think those are awesome stories. Can I tell you those were miserable lives? If we ask mid-story for any one of those people in Hebrews 11, where you're going, oh, I can't wait to see the movie. Or were you thinking, how in the world are we ever going to get through this? And we see in each of those examples that God was faithful in transforming suffering because all of those acts of faith were in context of uh, oppression and abuse and many things like that that, that would be comparable to the things that, that we're facing. And so, another question. What should I expect from my friends? Um, and as we think about friends... Uh, in light of codependency, we, we tend to get caught up in twin errors. Uh, the first is that we believe the next relationship is going to be the answer. Uh, and the second is that we believe our all relationships are dangerous, and so we avoid them. And the third of the two is that we ping-pong between the two. Uh, and usually one leading directly into the other. We're in that spot of being fearful. We don't trust any relationships, and so we avoid them. We withdraw. Uh, we isolate until our soul gets absolutely dry and parched. And, and then there is somebody, and we have a conversation, and we're so uh, deprived that we just blind trust, throw it out there more than, than that relationship can trust, and we jump in with both feet. And, and as it invariably happens when you microwave a relationship like that, we get hurt, and then we come back here. And so, that's where we need to see uh, that friends offer presence uh, more than deliverance. 
uh, one of the patterns uh, that I see too often when we're talking about codependent styles of relating. And hopefully at this point you, you can hear this and it, it doesn't feel like a, a defensive a, accusatory thing, but often the person who relates codependently, they will overdo. They will overdo for multiple people and because of that, they get in a very hard spot. And then they have the expectation that other people should overdo for them in the same way that they've overdone for others. And then they feel betrayed when other people will not imbalance their lives to rescue them from their imbalanced life. Because it doesn't feel fair. Well, and it wasn't fair here. And that doesn't make it any more fair there. And everything we've been talking about is how do we see this situation right so that we can back up while facing forward and get out of that hamster's wheel. Because when we think that way, and we oftentimes will get to that point where we act as if community is the fourth member of the Trinity. Uh, and community is going to be what makes it all better. And we want community to have that salvific impact. Uh, that the agents of the Trinity do have uh, and that community is meant to be an ambassador of but cannot itself provide. Um, we can expect from relationships uh, two ways love and service. That relationships, especially as we're getting into more healthy ones, these are great opportunities to begin to experiment with and experience balanced friendships. And just to get a chance to kind of play around with that and, and see what that's like. And then friendships are also a call to engage in common pleasures. Uh, some of the self-care that we've talked about and that we will talk about more in just a bit, those kinds of things are more fun when you do it with other people. Uh, and you'll do them more when you do them with other people. The only times I've ever consistently worked out in my life is when I had a workout partner. Uh, when I try to go to the gym by myself, it lasts for about one week. Uh, and, and so some of that aspect of community, it just reinforces those healthy patterns. And their friends are a great excuse to do healthy, fun things. Um, where am I? Yet how do we rightly interpret where we are? Um, because confidence in our ability to interpret our surroundings is a huge part of emotional regulation. And so we're in a dangerous world. There's no way around that. Um, but there's freedom in being able to gauge how dangerous this moment is and choosing an appropriate response instead of just saying, any danger is dangerous, I need to do something. And when we've stepped back to the point and we've assessed things rightly and we have a better sense of proportionality in the ways that we're growing towards, we can begin to have uh, some degrees on our thermometer. Uh, when, when you've grown up in a destructive relationship, uh, there is frozen and boiling. There are no degrees on the thermometer. And, and any hot is hot, hot. And when we begin to get those degrees, then things can be proportionately that way. Uh, where am I? I'm not alone. I really hope that that is one of the things uh, that this study provides. Uh, after a presentation like this, um, 
One of the compliments that is most meaningful to me, and I'm not asking for you to come up and give me this compliment, uh, but the one that, that may be most satisfying for me is when somebody comes up and says, thank you, I'm not crazy. I thought I was the only one. The things that I was experiencing, you made that make sense. And so that sense of, ah, what I'm experiencing has been experienced by enough people uh, that it can be described and written down and talked about in a public forum. And that uh, if I say, I don't, I don't know enough people that, that are relating to this in a healthy way, that's where a ministry like G4, where I can come with other people who are in the same way that they kind of felt crazy like I felt crazy and they're glad that they don't feel that way and we encourage and support one another. Um, that's what we want that ministry to be. And another thing about where you are, you're on a journey. And that's why it's okay if you're not there yet. Um, you know, when you get to this point in your journey, you're still at step six. Just because we got to step six in the verbal presentation does not mean you're there uh, in your personal journey. Uh, but even at this point, we're at step six. We're a work in process. Uh, and one of the biggest things that we want to learn to enjoy in all of this, we want to learn to be, enjoy being a work in process. Because if we go into this journey thinking the joy is at the end, there's a pretty good chance we won't make it. We'll just get discouraged. Uh, that being able to enjoy and rejoice and be encouraged and share in every part of the journey, um, that, is, uh, that is part of the journey. Uh, is love worth pain? That's a doozy of a question. And there is only one right answer. Uh, it, when we decide that love is not worth pain, we shut ourselves off to any form of vulnerability in a way uh, that is self-destructive. Uh, and so to the first part, I would say absolutely yes. Uh, but if you want to scratch through that exclamation point for a little while or at least put a question mark after it, something like that, uh, I'm okay with that. Because we want to get out of that all or nothing thinking. Um, it, if at this point you can simply agree with me that isolation is not safety, we're in good shape. Now, uh, that's why I would say it's okay to doubt and believe. Um, that's part of what it means to be strong enough to be weak. Uh, what we talked about just a moment ago. And this is where we realize that doubt and faith are not mutually exclusive. I mean, I love uh, the Mark 9 prayer uh, where the guy comes up to Jesus. <laughs> he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Um, that, um, and I think that honors God. Now, if you've come to many of these things, you know that I think all of life can be explained by Little League coaching. Uh, because that is my addiction of choice. Um, love Little League sports and that kind of stuff. One of my goals as coach is I want my little athletes uh, with their face paint and you know uniform and all that kind of stuff. I want them to trust me more than I fear the moment. More than they fear the moment. Uh, that, now, when we get out there on this field of play, 
Uh, and my little guys have just hit that point where they're pitching a baseball for the first time and they get up there and they realize nothing's going to happen until they throw the ball and the lights are on and mama's in the stands and she's got the video camera on and, and their buddy's up there and they know who that is and they realize they could hit them and this is all bad. Uh, at that moment, do I expect them to be Teflon? To be emotionally flatlined? No. I want to come out there on the mound and say, buddy, are you scared? And if they say no, I'm going to say, you're lying. Um, yeah, coach, I'm scared. Would coach put you out here if, you didn't, if I didn't think you were ready? No. Have we worked on this? Yeah. Have you done a good job? Mm-hmm. You like baseball, don't you? Mm-hmm. Have fun. You got it. And in that moment when they, when they let down just a little bit, and you can see kind of the shoulders dip, just not like in discouragement, but just they're not all tight. There's something really beautiful at that moment. That even though they're still scared, in a sense, are they in a really significant way honoring me as coach? It shows a special bond that somebody can come out there and speak that, and they go, I believe, help my unbelief. I think I can do this. I'm not sure. When we pray prayers like that, God does not roll His eyes. There is something sweet in that moment. Uh, he's like, that situation scares you to death, and you're still crying out to me, come here. Yet, uh, what am I living for? You know, this is where, when we live in relational dysfunction, a good day can begin to be marked by how somebody else lived. And what we're saying is we're taking that back. How you live does not get to determine the quality of my day. I love you. I want you to have a great day. You cannot take my day hostage. And too often, uh, that's what happens. And, and so we have to be able to answer the question, what am I living for? So that when we go to that life satisfaction scale that we started doing maybe weekly, maybe monthly in step two, uh, that we can have a seven day when they have a three day. Uh, and so we may live for the same things differently. And that's part of being unchanged. We talked about being changed and unchanged. We may go back and look at some of those talents or causes or interests that we have, and we begin to re-engage with those, and we remember afresh why we love those things. Because God made us with those passions and those interests and those gifts, and uh, kind of like Eric Little in Chariots of Fire, he said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel His pleasure. Uh, you know, God made me a skinny little nerd, and when I study, I feel His pleasure. That's just kind of, that's kind of who I am. It um, may be the same things differently. Maybe some new things. That's part of being changed. Uh, and the really cool thing about this part is that whatever changes are here, when we look at the interests that we have and the way that they've become refined, we almost always view these changes as good. 
Whenever I have talked to somebody on the backside of a significant hardship, and they give me some kind of verbal formula that says, you know, before blank happened, I thought X was important. But now I realize Y are the things that matter. That verbal formula is always cast in a, I am glad I am living for Y now instead of X. Because X was a midlife crisis waiting to happen. I think Y's got a shot at being a satisfying life. Um, Now, uh, a quote here uh, that tries to summarize uh, what all of step six is about. Uh, This is from Miroslav Volf. Uh, Miroslav is a wonderfully, incredibly intelligent man. And so our pastor, J.D., quotes from Tim Keller. Tim Keller quotes from Miroslav Volf. So we're going way upstream here. Um, it, he was a prisoner of war uh, when Yugoslavia was going through a lot of its political upheaval. And he wrote his book, The End of Memory, to say, what do I do with the memories of what happened? And he would say, I think I've forgiven. From every measure that I can tell of what it means to forgive and what I've done, I feel like I've done that. I can't forget. Uh, Advanced interrogation tactics, they were awful. Um, What do I do with that? Uh, And so somebody with a deep and abiding gospel-centered faith wrestling with that question that many of us would be wrestling with at this stage in our journey of going, okay, I, I acknowledge the thing that's happened. I've taken the destructive narrative off of them. I've mourned them. I'm understanding them in a, in a more gospel-centered, gospel-rooted, gospel-structured way. I feel like that's placing me on the place where I can forgive. But some of these memories are really painful. Uh, what do I do? Now, one quote is not going to answer that question. Uh, But if that's where you feel like you get stuck, I would very much recommend his book. He says, we're more than what we suffered. And that's why we can do something with our memory of it. Uh, We can integrate it into our life story, turn it into a junction uh, from which we set on new paths. All three elements of healing. A new identity, new possibilities, and integrated life stories. Uh, Those are his three categories. We approach them, uh, same ideas, different order in this material. They drew their basic content from the passion. Uh, That's the story of the uh, Christ crucifixion. Understood as the new exodus. And so he uses the crucifixion and the exodus story as the big paradigm for how he makes sense of his experience uh, in light of the gospel. He says, wrongdoing does not have the last word. If we remember a wrongdoing, no matter how horrendous, through the lens of remembering the Exodus, we will remember that wrongdoing uh, as a moment in history or moments in history of those who are already on their way to deliverance. And again, you read that in a few sentences and it feels rushed and a little overpromise underdeliver. Um, Hopefully in the context of this seminar, and if you take the time to read his book, uh, I think you will get to the point where you say, this, this substantively deals with the kind of horrendous things that people go through. 
in a way uh, that is a, really the only thing that can allow us to experience the kind of pains that we do in this world and not live lives that are defined by broken and bitterness.